Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon. I'm here. One of my writers, in this case, Nadiger. Thank you, Nadiger, has written me a script. Japan's mysterious soft drink poisonings, deadlier than the Tylenol murders. This is one of those ones which I just don't get. It's when people just kill people for no reason other than just being a psycho. It's like, And I know there are psychos, but it's like those Tylenol murders where someone, like, swapped pills for poison or whatever in little capsules. It's like, why? Why? I feel like it'd be very easy to kill people. Right? It's very easy to kill people. We just rely on the fact that people aren't total psychos. And they're not just they're just not gonna randomly kill innocent people. But apparently, Japan had this as well, so let's jump in and find out what happens. Uh, if you're new here, formula of the show, never read this before. So let's do it. In nineteen eighty two a wave of indiscriminate murders rattled America. Tylenol pain relief tablets became a deadly weapon as they were tampered with and laced with sodium cyanide. This horrifying incident claimed seven lives and left others injured. Subsequent copycat crimes prompted a sweeping overhaul of over-the-counter medication packaging, giving rise to the introduction of modern tamper-evident seals. Yeah, it was kind of weird in the past. You could just like <laughs> go in and it's like, oh yeah, what? It's just like Smarties. Even now, like, I swear, if you buy Smarties, Americans, do you have Smarties? They're like little chocolate things wrapped in sugar. When I was a kid, they used to come in a tube and you'd pop the top off. I'm sure now that tube will have like a little seal around it. So you know if someone's been inside there because that's the world we do. When I was a kid, I can't remember how young I was. I must have been really young. But there was a rumor going around that the blue Smarties were poisonous. And I remember having like a box of Smarties and I was eating them and I didn't know what to do with all the blue ones. Like these blue ones were poisonous. So I'd hide them around the classroom. and <laughs> be like... Just gonna hide that one there. <laughs> That's a poisonous one. We'll put that one there and try not to think about who's gonna find it. <laughs> Although this transformation has completely eradicated the menace of product tampering, it has empowered consumers to sidestep instances of indiscriminate poisoning in many cases. This innovative packaging design, initially implemented in the pharmaceutical industry, gradually found its way into food and beverage packaging, contributing to a significantly safer world. You know what drives me absolutely potty? I swear it's come out in the, like the last six months. Anyone else? Is this a European Union thing? It feels like a European Union thing. Like, where it's like, oh, like, I love the European Union. Don't get me wrong. I'm like, not keen on Brexit. I thought that was a bad idea. I didn't vote because I can't vote on UK shit anymore. But if I could, I would have voted to remain. Not just for the hassle that it now introduces for me in airports, but just, I, I don't know, I think it's better as a group. But the EU does come out with some pretty wacky law sometimes. You're know, right, really? Really? Did we really need this? Really? And one of those is now, whenever you open a bottle of soft drink or anything with like a plastic top, like milk, it's attached to the f***ing thing. So you take it off and then it's attached with this little piece of plastic to it. So you're pouring it and it's falling in the way of your drink or you're trying to drink from it and you've got this like plastic bottle cap like right next to your face. It's insane. And it reminds me like, I think my dad said when he was young cans would have just pull tabs that you'd rip off and people would just litter the place with them because they ripped them off they wouldn't know what to do with them so they just throw them on the ground because it was the past like we've all seen mad men where don draper's just finished with his picnic and he just picks up the blanket he shakes all the trash off into the park and leaves and it's like yeah because of the past but we don't have a litter problem with like plastic bottle caps everywhere. And if it's a recycling thing, it's like, well, I'm either recycling it or I'm not. It's not like I'm taking that cap and throwing that in the regular bin and then the rest of the plastic in the in the recycling. It's like, why is this a thing? It's madness. I'm sounding like a right old man, aren't I? Anyone else get absolutely driven up the wall by that? I don't know why that became a thing. 
But just like many innovations, they came at different paces in different parts of the world, and the necessity for change is often triggered by a tide of death. Today, we examine a pair of indiscriminate poisoning cases that took place in Japan, distinct from the infamous Tylenol murders, but marked by uncanny parallels. In the early months of 1977, Tokyo and Osaka witnessed a disturbing series of poisonings by cyanide-laced Coca-Cola and chocolate, killing at least five. How are you with Coca-Cola? Was there a point? I mean, even bottles, like with the steel caps or whatever, you gotta like pop them off, right? How are you tampering with Coke? Are you like injecting it or something? Oh God, now every soft drink I have, because I'm exactly this sort of person, I'm gonna buy it and the cap's gonna be intact, but I'm gonna give it a squeeze to make sure that the pressure's all there and to make sure no one's like poked a hole in it to poison me. That's gonna be my life from now on and I'm not happy about it. The killing stopped as abruptly as they had began, but another perplexing poisoning spree started in 1985. This time, the sinister acts unfolded across a dozen Japanese cities, resulting in the deaths of 12 people and injuries to some 35 others. Haunting similarities between them beg the question, were these cases connected, or are they a collection of cruel calling cards from one of Japan's darkest subcultures? Due to the constraints imposed by Japanese law, the majority of the victims of these poisonings were not named. Their identities remain undisclosed to the public and often do not appear in official records. Therefore, we will adhere to the references utilized in newspapers and police reports, identifying the individuals by age and gender, and occasionally noting their profession when available. I like that. I think that's the right way to do it. Some other countries do this as well. I think Germany is a big one. We've done some German cases, and it's like they never name the victims. And in UK law, I believe it's done for people underage. So if you're under 18, you're referred to, I'd be like referred to as Simon W or whatever, stuff like that. I think if you're a baby, there was a famous case about a baby, baby P, something like this in the UK a few years ago. And just to keep total anonymity, stuff like that, which I think is very nice because you're a victim of a crime. If you're the perpetrator and you've been found guilty, I mean, f you. like, let's have your name everywhere. Indeed, some places, in fact, here in Czech Republic, You'll read the news, and the perpetrators of the crime, their faces are all blurred out, and their names are not mentioned until they're found guilty, which I think is rather clever, to be honest. I think that's probably a better way of doing things. Is there a reason we don't do things like that? Because it seems right that people should have privacy until they're found guilty of a crime, because otherwise you could be tried by public opinion. What would become known as the Coca-Cola murders began on January the 3rd, 1977, when a high school-age boy found a bottle of Coke left inside a public payphone near the Shinagawa station in Tokyo. On his way home from his part-time job, the boy thought he'd stumbled upon a tasty treat. The cola sat in his home until around 1am, when he decided to have a drink, immediately spitting it out, though, because it tasted acrid. The poison was so potent that despite washing his mouth out in the sink, he passed out and was rushed to the hospital. A stomach pump was no use. His cause of death was determined to be cyanide poisoning. Later on the morning of the 4th, only 600 meters north of the payphone where the youth discovered the poisoned soda, a 46-year-old salaryman was discovered collapsed in the road, an empty bottle of Coca-Cola lying beside him. He was dead on arrival at the hospital, and an autopsy confirmed that he was poisoned by cyanide as well. But general rule, if you find something, if you find like a full bottle of Coke, or a full can of beer or something, don't drink it. Just don't drink it. Like, don't drink stuff you find on the street. It's not a good idea. Please, come on now. 
During the investigation following the two deaths in the Shinagawa area, the police came across a 15-year-old boy working in his family's shop. The teenager had found a bottle of Coca-Cola on the payphone just outside the store, intending to enjoy it after his shift. It didn't require much persuasion from the police for him to surrender the bottle, and subsequent testing revealed an alarming and lethal dose of cyanide in the cola. Can you imagine being like, no, no, it's mine. I found it. Finders keepers. <laughs> it's like, it could kill you. It's like, I want my Coke. It's fine. Numerous locals attested to witnessing similar bottles appearing and shifting around the area throughout early January when the spate of attempted killings abruptly ceased. Despite the bottles moving, no one was ever seen moving them. The incident almost slipped from memory on the eve of Valentine's Day when a 39-year-old man in Osaka stumbled upon a forgotten bottle of Coke at a public payphone inside a store where he was buying cigarettes. After taking a sip, he lost consciousness and was promptly taken to hospital. Fortunately, he recovered following a stomach pump and emergency medication. Strangely, it wasn't the cyanide in the soda that threatened his life, but the overwhelming shame he felt. The day after his hospital discharge, he tragically took his own life. In the note he left for his family, he said, I knew about the Tokyo incident, yet I drank the soda anyway. I'm too ashamed to face the world after falling victim. Bro, this is cr- Dude. Like, it's not your fault. Like, the odds of it are so small. I mean, don't do it. But no one's going to be like, shame, shame. Shame. Because you did this. Oh, that's so sad. What the f***? The three officially recognized victims aside, both law enforcement and amateur investigators have identified several cases of attempted indiscriminate poisoning on the 14th involving sodium cyanide. The president of the Tokyo station Yaisu Underground Mall stumbled upon a paper bag containing a case worth of Valentine's chocolates near the mall's entrance. Aware of the cola poisonings, he promptly contacted the police and turned over the chocolates. Initially treating it as lost property, the police, unable to identify an owner, returned the chocolates to the manufacturing company. Really? Japan. I mean, don't your police have something better to do? It's like, just throw it away. Who cares? Upon closer inspection, the chocolate company made a chilling discovery. The serial numbers on the boxes had been deliberately scratched off. Adding to this unsettling revelation, a disturbing phrase was found scrawled inside the top of one of the boxes. I will deliver divine justice on the proud, ugly Japanese. And the Japanese looked something like this, which we're displaying on the screen now. Obviously, I can't read it. Japanese writing looks like little, little stick men. <laughs> on the same day, a more successful chocolate poisoning unfolded. Just outside the toilets at Tokyo Station, a man discovered a bar of chocolate and decided to pick it up. After consuming the candy during his commute, he soon fell unconscious. Upon regaining consciousness at the hospital, he underwent a swift recovery. However, his doctors diagnosed the incident as mere food poisoning and discharged him without further investigation. It wasn't until almost a year later that his case would be linked to the attempted Valentine chocolate poisonings. Again, dudes, don't be eating random shit you find on the street. It's a bad idea. At that time, police investigators conducted a series of inquiries, leading to multiple witnesses testifying that they had observed a man placing chocolates in and around Tokyo Station on the morning of February 14th. Among these witnesses, one had picked up one of these bars, but had forgotten about it. Astoundingly, they still had it in their possession. They willingly provided this potentially crucial evidence to the police. Upon analysis, the police discovered the same method had been employed in these chocolates as in those examined by the chocolate company. Someone had meticulously peeled back the foil lining, scraped a cavity into the bottom of each piece of chocolate, mixed the chocolate shavings with a dose of sodium cyanide, and carefully pressed this lethal mixture back into the cavity before expertly rewrapping the bar. And I guess this is why, like, there were some chocolates, even when I was a kid, that were, and it felt very old school back then, that were wrapped in, uh, were they wrapped in 
foil. I think they were only wrapped in foil if they came as part of a multi-pack. British people, I'm specifically thinking of club. If you like a lot of chocolate on your biscuit, join our club. Anyone remember that? <laughs> I don't know why I remember. It reminds me of my nan because she used to buy these and they'd be wrapped in, they'd come in the plastic thing for safety, I guess. And then each one would be wrapped in foil and around that would be a little paper thing. And often on that paper thing, there'd be a little scratching card, you know, like a scratch card, but for chocolate. And it was much more rudimentary. But my nan figured out that if you shone them at a specific under angle under this one type of light, that you could see what was beneath them. So she'd always buy like one thing of clubs and then she'd scratch off the ones perfectly correctly and then she'd go back to the store and get more clubs. And then she'd have loads of clubs, club biscuits. And then me and my sister would go round to her to her house and she'd be like, I've got a huge stack of like club labels for you to hold under the light and scratch off and then I'll take them back to the store and get more clubs. And so she basically had an infinite supply of clubs. And I'm like, what's up with this, Nan? <laughs> I would make a joke about her being from the North. <laughs> That it was. Uh, I've mentioned my dad before. She was a woman who would uh, use the same tea bag twice. Sodium cyanide is a potent and swift-acting poison with even small doses taking effect within moments. Ingesting, inhaling, or skin exposure to this compound can lead to symptoms including vomiting, spasms, paralysis, unconsciousness, and ultimately death. Acquiring small quantities of sodium cyanide can be challenging, but individuals with appropriate licenses in the mining, ore processing, or chemical manufacturing industries can purchase large amounts with ease. Due to its effectiveness in inducing poisoning with a minimal dose and its ability to dissolve in water, sodium cyanide remains a long-standing favorite of poisoners worldwide. Is that what they used in Breaking Bad? What was that thing that Walter White puts in the cigarette to poison Jesse's girlfriend? Was it Jesse's girlfriend or Jesse's kid? It was someone who was poisoned. It was horrible. Was that cyanide? The Coca-Cola bottles analyzed for this case contained cyanide levels ranging from 10 to 60 times the lethal dose. How did that bro... Wait, was that the Coke? What was in the chocolate? Because the dude, he was just like, ah, it's just food poisoning. <laughs> we need to work out what that dude's made of because he's got that cyanide... Uh, what's it called? Where you're imu immune. Immunity. He's got cyanide immunity. While the chocolate was seemingly more effective at covering the taste of the sodium cyanide, the tampered candy bar contained a far lesser dose. Okay, never mind, it was less. The aftermath of these indiscriminate poisonings had a significant impact on the beverage industry, particularly leading to the phasing out of self-serve glass bottle soda machines. What is that? A glass but self-serve glass bottle soda machine? While not uncommon during the period of the poisonings, these machines quickly became increasingly rare, eventually being entirely replaced by self-service options at man's locations. Many companies that had traditionally offered products in glass bottles swiftly transitioned to cans, a container equipped with a built-in tamper-evident feature the tab. Regrettably, the case itself remained unsolved and gradually faded from public memory, overshadowed by the global attention garnered by the Tylenol murders a few years later. In early 1985, the Otsuka Pharmaceutical Company launched a special promotion to boost the popularity of their long-standing vitamin drink, Oranamin C, a limited-time two-for-one offer. On April the 30th of that year, a 45-year-old trucker passing through Fukuyama in Hiroshima Prefecture stopped to refuel and grab a drink. Upon purchasing his beverage, he noticed a bottle of Oranamin C sitting atop the vending machine. Recalling vaguely the ongoing two-for-one deal by the company, he picked it up, assuming it was placed there by a marketer as part of the campaign. Unfortunately, he was taken to the hospital later that day and succumbed to the poisoning two days later. Did that? Does that dude not know how two-for-one works? He's like, oh, look, free soda. That's how two-for-one works. He's like, no, bro, you have to buy one and then you get another one free. Is this new to you? Subsequent tests on the trucker's stomach contents revealed the presence of a potent pesticide in his system, 
paraquat. When ingested orally, this toxic chemical can inflict severe damage on the lungs, liver, heart, and kidneys. Swift treatment involving a stomach pump and substances like Fuller's Earth or activated charcoal is critical to mitigate the effects. Without prompt intervention, the mortality rate for concentrated paraquat exceeds 60%. Whoa. This is activated charcoal's amazing. Like, I remember making a video about like what happens if dogs eat chocolate. Random, I know. It was on Today I Found Out where it, random is the name of the game. And it was like what to do if your dog eats chocolate and it's like if you've got any carbon bills like the charcoal tablets feed them to the dog if you don't have them burn some toast and feed that to the dog and i'm like what and it's because the toast turns to carbon and apparently that carbon is good at absorbing the poisons that put in the chocolate that dogs are sensitive to or whatever it's like god damn okay burnt toast huh it's worth noting that Oranemin C drinks at that time featured a twist-off cap that could be securely screwed back on. Being a non-carbonated beverage, there is no audible sound or pressure change upon opening the bottle, leaving consumers without a sensory indicator of potential tampering. Many months later, the second death in the series of vending machine murders occurred. On September 11, 1985, a 52-year-old man returning home from a fishing trip stopped for gas in Izmasano in Osaka Prefecture. After buying a bottle of Oranamin C from a vending machine, he observed another bottle resting on top of the machine. Recalling the promotional set, what do people not understand? Two for one? <laughs> it's not like, oh yeah, you buy it from the vending machine and then you just take the one that's sitting on top of the machine. That's how it works. No, it doesn't because everyone would just take the one on the top of the machine and leave. Two for one, that's not, come on. Recalling the promotional sale, similar to the trucker's case, he picked it up, assuming it was placed there as part of the marketing campaign. After drinking, he was rushed to the hospital that evening and unfortunately succumbed to the poisoning three days later. Subsequent testing confirmed the presence of paraquat in the leftover oranamin. The next victim, a 22-year-old college student, was poisoned on the 12th in Matsusaka. She discovered two bottles of oranamin C near her home and brought them inside. Hospitalized shortly thereafter, she passed away on the 14th with paraquat detected in her stomach. On the 19th, in Echizen, a 30-year-old individual found an opened Coca-Cola and decided to consume it. After experiencing vomiting, he underwent a stomach pump at the hospital. Despite medical intervention, he died three days later due to paraquat poisoning. I just got back from a trip, and I was staying in a hotel. And one evening, I'm just like, or one afternoon, I'm, like, I'm just going to go down to the bar, have a little drink, and chill out. And so I go down, I order a beer, I sit there, I'm drinking my beer. And the man's like, oh, it's uh, you're in Happy Hours, but I won't get one free. And I'm like, no, I'm good. And he's like, what? And I'm like, I just, I just, I just wanted the one beer. Thanks. And he's like, yeah, but you, you have another one. And it took a long time for the man to understand that I do not want the free beer. I just wanted one beer and that's all. And I was like, bro, I just don't want it. And he's like, do you want, do you, do you want to take it up to your room? It's like, no, I don't want to take it up to my room. <laughs> I just don't want it. The next day. I go down and I sit in the bar and I'm like, I'll have a beer. <laughs> and the guy's like, you have your beer from yesterday, sir. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine, I'll take it, Jesus. And then I'm like, but today I want a second beer. And he's like, this is going to continue, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, I don't want that third beer, thanks. <laughs> I just don't understand why it was so hard. I just don't want it. It's like, give it to someone else. <laughs> On the 20th, a 45-year-old man attempting to purchase drinks from a vending machine in Maya Kanojo made a discovery. Two bottles of Real Gold, a ginseng-flavored soft drink, waiting in the output compartment. Upon returning home, he drank the sodas. Now that is a better place to put it. Because I would... That is a place where I would probably be fooled. I'd like, oh, what I would assume happen 
is someone's vended and it's got stuck on the thing, you know, like sometimes happens and someone's banged it and it hasn't fallen down. But at some point they've walked away and it's fallen down on its own accord and it's just fallen down into the bottom there. And I'll be like, sweet, I'm picking that up and I'm eating it or drinking it. That would get me. Then I'd be poisoned. There we go. That's my, that's my, that's my level of <laughs> stupidity. <laughs> He soon experienced illness and was subsequently hospitalized, passing away two days later. Testing by the police revealed paraquat in the remaining soda within the bottles. On the 23rd, a similar fate befell a 50-year-old man who found two C drinks in the outlet of a vending machine when he purchased one. This marked the beginning of a recurring pattern in the next six killings, spanning from September the 23rd to November the 7th. Notably, the victims were all middle-aged or elderly men who had purchased C from a vending machine, although their poisonings unfolded in different cities. Breaking the established pattern, a shift occurred on November the 17th when a 17-year-old high school student in Saitama Prefecture stumbled upon an additional Coca-Cola in the vending machine outlet right after purchasing a drink. Taking it home, she succumbed to poisoning a week later with Paraquat identified in the Coca-Cola bottle. Compounding the tragedy, the vending machine featured a note from the vendor taped to the front addressing the ongoing incidents. The final official death in this spree took a peculiar turn. A 25-year-old man from Kanazawa was buying a bottle of milk for his morning coffee from his usual vending machine. Consuming the tainted milk over several days, he received multiple smaller doses of paraquat compared with the other victims. He tragically passed away after enduring organ failure for 47 agonizing days. While the official death toll of the paraquat murders concludes with the previously mentioned case, a series of copycat crimes unfolded across Japan during the autumn and winter of 1985. On September the 17th, an unsettling incident occurred when a woman working at an art gallery attempted to poison a manager with cyanic acid in his coffee, hoping the police would link the death to the paraquat murders. Following the failed attempt, she was arrested, and it was revealed that she had been embezzling funds. Two more events on the 25th and 27th of September. <laughs> She'd been Those were the least of her problems after she murdered her boss. Japan has death penalty. Do they execute people for murder? I mean, yes. Do they execute for that? Maybe. Aggravated? With the embezzling? Possibly. Who knows? Two more events on the 25th and 27th of September remained unsolved. In these incidents, an unidentified copycat sought to poison people by introducing a lime-sulfur mix into the drinks and leaving them near vending machines. Fortunately, these attempted indiscriminate murders were thwarted, largely due to the unmistakable and pungent smell of sulfur from the pesticide, preventing the successful execution of the sinister plot. So people are really copying each other. It's not one dude. I think there are three people, because they're using different poisons, and the third person's obviously a bit of an idiot. During the same period, at least four instances emerged involving individuals exhibiting Munchausen syndrome or attempting to disguise their suicides. On September the 27th, a junior high student was admitted to the hospital complaining of stomach pains after consuming a peculiar-tasting drink. The drink she consumed couldn't be found, so testing it could not be done to determine if it was linked to the vending machine murders. Do I need to say what Munchausen's is? I only know what it is because I watched that TV show House. It's where people pretend to be sick to get attention i think specifically from doctors but i'm not all like medical professionals but i'm not sure it might just be for attention in general however the girl subsequently admitted to intentionally dosing herself with pesticide seeking sympathy from her classmates three days after this self-inflicted case a 22 year old man contacted the police reporting that the drinks he had purchased from a vending machine had an unusual taste upon investigation it was discovered that it personally mixed paraquat into the drinks after being taken in for questioning and further investigation, there was no evidence found to link the man to the other poisonings. Um, well, he's not going to, like, grasp him, so he's just doing it for attention or whatever, isn't he? Because he's not going to be like, police, look, I found this. And they'll be like, if you were the actual poisoner, that would be an utterly insane thing to do. And just because you're a psycho doesn't mean you're insane. These are not medical terms. <laughs> People in the comments are going to be angry. But you know what I mean, right? 
That would be a very bad idea. But criminals have plenty of bad ideas, as we well know. Ah, <laughs> uh, let me just interrupt your listening to tell you about today's fantastic sponsor, and that is our regular sponsor, friends of the show, Shopify, who allow you to sell anything online. I always say like sell online, but they also have an in-person point of sale system so that if you're just running a regular shop or I don't know, like a market stand or whatever, or wherever you're selling, Shopify have got you covered. I think they must have started online as kind of just e-commerce, right? And then like technology made it possible. Like point of sale and stuff. I used to work in a supermarket back when I was a kid. And like point of sale stuff was enormously complicated. There were big tills with screens and all sorts of complicated stuff. And now it's just like, oh no, you can you can just do it with Shopify. I think the the deal today is like it's a dollar a month or something. <laughs> and it used to cost companies like a fortune. I always tell that story of my mate who ran a store and he spent like it was thousands upon thousands of pounds getting it set up. And now it's like, oh no, no, you can do that for a dollar with Shopify. And it's uh, it's better. Isn't the future amazing? Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify have got you covered, and they help you grow. Plus, what's extra cool is uh, they've got this best converting checkout thing. So at the checkout page, apparently it converts 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And I don't know when you run the numbers on that. Doesn't that mean like one third more people end up buying? If I'm getting my maths right, that's kind of amazing. It's slightly more than a third. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Honestly, I don't even know what that is, but it does sound impressive. Look, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, they've got extensive help resources that are there to support you across every step of your journey. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com casual, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com casual now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com casual. And now back to today's episode. On December the 11th, another junior high student was discovered collapsed by a vending machine. Investigators determined that she had poured a dose of Paraquat into her soda before consuming it. Fortunately, due to heightened awareness created by the media coverage of the Paraquat murders, prompt care was provided and she made a full recovery. Later, the girl would confess to her actions. The final copycat crime unfolded on December the 31st when a businessman attempted to poison his co-workers at a restaurant with Paraquat. He was apprehended immediately, and the police, upon his capture, clarified to the press that he was not the Paraquat murderer. Instead, he had led his company into bankruptcy and sought to eliminate his superiors before they could terminate him. He planned to attribute their deaths, and potentially his suicide, to the ongoing Paraquat poisonings, providing a misguided cover for his actions. Despite changes implemented by the drink manufacturing and pesticide industries in the following months, pesticide poisonings continued to pose a persistent threat in Japan, making up nearly 40% of all poisoning incidents since 2000. The most recent incident, occurring in 2019, remains unsolved. A customer using a beer vending machine in Yokoti discovered a can in the machine's outlet. Bro, now I'm never drinking that sh I'm never, if I discover that, I'm throwing that sh away. And people will be like, I'll just leave it for someone else. It's probably not poison. No, I'm throwing that. I'm going to find, if I see that, I'm throwing it away. I'm just throwing it in the bin, which is rough because that's probably someone's, make someone's day. Like if I was a kid and I found a Coke in a vending machine, I'd be like, yes, this is the best day ever. And now I'm going to ruin that for people. Not that I find stuff left in vending machines ever, but 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save lives with this one. <laughs> As the can was leaking, he brought it to the attention of the store owner. The store owner identified a tiny hole on the side of the can, leaking bubbling beer. Upon opening the container, the liquid inside exhibited a peculiar bluish tint. A week later, the store owner reported this mysterious occurrence to the police. Bro, what are you doing? <laughs> it's like, guys, I had a busy week. <laughs> After investigation, authorities detected paraquat inside the can, highlighting the continuing challenges and dangers posed by such deliberate poisoning attempts. Japan, often recognized as one of the safest countries in the world, has witnessed a notable surge in indiscriminate violence over the past few decades. Prolonged economic challenges since the 1990s, intense societal and familial pressures to excel in education and the workplace, and extreme feelings of isolation have converged, bringing attention to a long-standing problem of youth disenfranchisement and radicalization in the country. Specific terms, mukatsuku and kiriru, meaning anger, and snapping, respectively when translated literally, have been coined to describe these forms of occasional violent delinquency. Kirieru also translates to acts of rage, further elucidating the hidden social issues within Japanese culture. These terms are typically linked to the challenges of adolescence, but are frequently extended to incidents of youth violence, even encompassing adults up to the age of 30. A study examining stress related to school experiences in children reveals an alarming statistic. 90% of Japanese girls report experiencing incidents that they would characterize as snapping at least every month, while incidents of anger are more prevalent among boys. I mean, yes, <laughs> they're, they're kids. It's like, yeah, no, I, I need to report that I feel anger once a month. Jesus, I'm 36 and I feel anger once a month. <laughs> Way more than once a month. And definitely snapping. That less. I used to be, I used to have a bit of a temper. I've got it under control um, for the most part. <laughs> but like, I'll be like snapping, especially like, I don't know, I, I've got to rein it in. And I, I do, I do, I think I do a good job of reining it in because like kids test your bloody patience. And I'll, I used to be like, stop it. And now I'm like, Please stop doing that. And inside, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> but you got to rein it in because you got to rein it in. That's why. Despite some children having supportive family structures or coping mechanisms that aid in resolving emotional buildups healthily, many lack such resources. The spectrum of behaviors associated with these terms spans from expressing frustration by screaming into a pillow to engaging in verbal altercations with classmates or resorting to physical violence. Honest, doesn't this just sound like teenagers? Troublingly, the vast majority of Japanese children find themselves compelled to regular emotional outbursts due to the intense pressures of their school environments. Again, doesn't the vast majority of everywhere's children have regular emotional outbursts? Because they're children and teenagers. Their brains are doing all sorts of crazy shit with chemicals. I mean, even as adults, our brains are doing all sorts of crazy shit chemicals. But as kids, it's like, what the f*** is going on? In the aftermath of the 1985 Paraquat murders, Hiro. Koki Iwao, then a professor of criminology at Tokyo University, remarked on the societal dynamics contributing to this phenomenon, stating, It is not uncommon for Japanese who live under tremendous pressure, both on the job and in overcrowded communities, to let out their frustrations by hurting someone else. The quote ends. It's more common for individuals grappling with societal frustrations to channel their distress through abusive behavior within their families or engaging in bar fights. However, instances where people resort to murder as a means of venting their broader societal frustrations are not unheard of. Again, this isn't specific to Japan. This is like, yeah, some people get in fights, and then uh, I'd say that it's got to be a smaller... It's less than... I don't know, I've never been in a fight, so I don't think it's that many. But people get into fights, even as adults definitely as kids, and a very small percentage take that to murder, I suppose. It's not like a uniquely Japanese thing. 
In the minds of these individuals, it is not solely the stress of work or pressure from their family, but a perception of society as a whole bearing down on them. This line of thinking has been implicated in various incidents in Japan, including notorious events like the Tokyo subway sarin attacks. The lack of robust mental health support systems leaves individuals grappling with their challenges without adequate resources or assistance, potentially exacerbating their distress and contributing to the manifestation of more severe and potentially violent issues. When you factor in the widespread prevalence of isolationist subcultures like otaku or hikikomori, along with the presence of ultra-conservative neto-uyugu groups, you create an environment conductive to the emergence of toxic subcultures not unlike Western incels. Yeah, again, this isn't just a Japan. It's like, yeah, this is like incels. <laughs> what was it? Some guy on... There was some dude on Twitter the other. Like, I don't have much interaction with incels, but I think I made fun of incels in some video. And some dude, like, was absolutely going nuts on me on Twitter. <laughs> I just quote tweeted him and be like, Justin needs to get laid. And it's like, I, don't, I just don't understand incels. I don't understand. However, unlike incels, the radicalized hatred within these subcultures is directed at society in general rather than specific targets such as women or racial minorities. This broader focus on societal grievances makes it challenging for authorities to track their rhetoric over the internet and broadens the scope of potential targets. Similar to incels, extreme members of these isolationist subcultures, when pushed to breaking points, may resort to acts of indiscriminate murder followed by suicide attempts. The act of indiscriminate murder is often an attempt by the perpetrator to ensure the death penalty, a fact frequently highlighted in the aftermath of the infamous Ikihabara incident in 2008. Uh, I don't know what that is, but I'll assume it's bad. The complex intersection of isolation, societal pressures, and the rise of radicalized ideologies on the internet highlights the need for a comprehensive approach to address mental health to mitigate the risk of such tragic outcomes. The existence of subcultures marked by intense isolation and youth delinquency, along with issues related to mental health, is not a new phenomenon in Japan. The term yahatsu, coined in the 1960s, describes individuals seeking to escape unhappy marriages, work pressures, or other social discomforts by vanishing without a trace. However, that is a far better thing to do. Like, if you're like, how am I going to deal with all this societal pressure and stuff? Just disappear! Don't go randomly kill people and hope to get executed. Just go live in the f***ing woods! Or just get on a plane and, like, burn your passport and live in an airport or... I don't know, what the f***? Just don't... 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 come on. Come on, that's a much better thing. However, this topic is considered taboo in Japan for various reasons, leading to an underreporting of missing persons cases and the absence of a comprehensive missing persons database. <laughs> of course it's considered taboo. It's like you ran away from life. It's estimated by the Japanese state that 100,000 people disappear as yahatsu each year. Holy f***. That's a lot of people! However, the National Agency of Japan often registers far fewer missing persons reports. In 2015, 82,000 missing person reports were filed throughout Japan. That same year in Britain, a country with less than half the population of Japan, 300,000 reports of missing persons were recorded. What? There's like, what, 80 million people in the UK? 300,000 missing people reports every year? That seems extraordinarily high! <laughs> people are just going missing! Wait, what the fuck? <laughs> that isn't that crazy? If it was 3,000, I wouldn't be surprised. If it was 30,000, I'd be surprised. 300,000 is an unbelievably large number. What the fuck?
UK. In addition, the challenges surrounding Yahatsu, other social taboos related to mental illness and depression, intensify issues of isolation and depression, further fueling the anger snap cycle in Japanese society. I feel like this entire video is me pointing out that this isn't just in Japan, which, and maybe it's more intense in Japan or whatever, but there's also totally taboos related to mental illness in the Western world as well, and like seeking help for depression and all of that stuff. I absolutely don't think there should be, of course. <laughs> statement of the obvious of the year, Simon. But this isn't a unique thing. Japan isn't the only country experiencing such issues, but its low racial diversity and general socio-cultural homogeneity make it an interesting case study in this instance. In any society, addressing and strengthening mental health infrastructure is crucial to providing necessary support for those navigating the complex landscape of societal pressures and personal struggles. Completely agree. I just think mental health care is just a bit of a ways behind regular health care because like we've had regular health care for a good good while like i think i don't know about america i'm thinking about europe specifically and the uk and it's like but mental health wasn't really something that people thought was a getting sick was a thing people knew people got sick mental health was often like oh you're just weak or whatever and then we realized oh okay that's actually a sickness and so that's just got regular sickness has a much bigger has a, has a hell of a head start compared to mental health and mental sickness and i think we're just playing catch up with that and you can see it now like it's much more people talk about mental health much more than they did in the past i still think it's way behind but i like how much progress is being made there not enough but some a health and society article from nippon.com poses a chilling yet pertinent question why are indiscriminate mass murders on the rise in Japan? Although the article primarily delves into incidents starting from the infamous 2001 attack on an elementary school in Osaka, incidents of indiscriminate murder in Japan can be traced back further in history. The analysis of several perpetrators presented in the article underscores despair as a root cause of these tragic and indiscriminate crimes. It also explores the intricate connections between isolation and suicidality, shedding light on the complex interplay of social pressures, mental health challenges, and individual struggles that contribute to such a devastating outcome. The eerie similarities between the Coca-Cola poisonings and the Paraquat murders are indeed striking, and raise the unsettling possibility of a single individual being responsible for both sets of crimes. Despite the long gap between these incidents, the shared elements include the use of similar bait and fast-acting poisons. In neither case was the suspect ever identified or seen placing the bottles in public spaces. The Coca-Cola poisonings, although occurring in a more confined area, exhibit a pattern suggestive of a macabre form of experimentation. The deliberate placement of bottles around Osaka and Tokyo, the use of chocolate during Valentine's Day, and the manipulation of the beverage's locations indicated a calculated approach. This individual seemed interested in observing where the tainted items would be picked up, even going so far as to move them when they weren't. The speculation that this same person may have been motivated by a deep-seated anger towards society, perhaps stemming from the disdain for the happiness of couples, is a chilling possibility. The continuous attempt to carry out acts of harm over an extended period suggests a sustained vendetta. While it remains uncertain whether one person is behind both sets of crimes, the shared modus operandi raises disturbing questions about the motivations and intentions of the perpetrator or perpetrators involved. I definitely believe it's perpetrators because the modus operandi is similar, but I think it's a copycat because they're different enough. What would be interesting if there's any... Eh, they're different already. But you know, sometimes the police don't reveal all of the details to the public so they can tell if it's a copycat or not. That would be interesting. The notion that the same individual could be responsible for both the Coca-Cola poisonings and the Paraquat murders, potentially evolving his methods over the years, yeah, but he went from something that was very effective to something that was less effective, which is surprising. 
is a compelling possibility. The shift from cyanide to paraquat and the refined techniques observed in the 2019 case of attempted paraquat poisoning could indeed show a level of expertise and experience. This compounds with the lack of success in copycat crimes and the elusive nature of the paraquat murderer, lending credence to the idea that the perpetrator had prior knowledge and experience. The continuity in the modus operandi, including potential refinements, raises the prospect of an individual traveling the country, leaving poisoned bottles in vending machines as they moved from city to city and never being caught. The question of whether this is an individual seeking release for personal rage at society or deriving sick pleasure from harming others remains unclear. The Tokyo police's belief that the indiscriminate nature of the Coca-Cola poisonings indicated a pleasure killer adds a disturbing layer to the potential motives behind these crimes. Given the 2019 paraquat poisoning attempt, there is a possibility that a bitter old man, possibly still residing in Japan, continues to carry out these acts as a sadistic anger release or a perverse form of pleasure. This makes the crime's unsolved nature all the more unsettling. The grim reality is that both the Coca-Cola and paraquat murders are likely to remain unsolved. The legal landscape in Japan posed an additional challenge to resolving these cases. Before 2010, the statute of limitations for murder under Japanese law was 15 years. Bro! How about no statute of limitations for murder? 15 years. It'd be like, how old am I? 36. If I murdered someone at 21, I could now be like, yeah, bro, when I was 21, I fucking murdered someone. That's crazy. <laughs> Unfortunately, each of these cases surpassed this time frame, effectively reaching their expiration. It's worth noting that the statute of limitations for certain serious crimes, <laughs> I feel like murder is one of those, including all those that quorum the death penalty was abolished in 2010. Good. Nevertheless, for cases predating this legal change, the expiration of the statute of limitations remains a significant obstacle to the pursuit of justice. The inability to prosecute and hold accountable those responsible for these heinous acts contributes to the tragic legacy of these unsolved crimes, a sadly typical norm for cold cases in Japan. While we may not be able to solve these cases, as they stand, there are valuable lessons to be gleaned from them. The allure of a tasty bar of chocolate or a refreshing bottle of soda is undeniable for many, particularly those on the move. During every bathroom break on a long journey, the temptation of extensive displays of sugary snacks and buzzing banks of coolers lined with bright-colored sodas are sure to be found nearby. Regardless of your origin or destination, it's crucial to pause and reconsider before reaching for that seemingly forgotten soda in the vending machine's outlet. While many may praise their luck in such a situation, that sweet treat may disguise a deadly trick more easily than one might imagine. Don't drink random sh** you find in the street and in vending machines. Good lesson from today's episode, even though these people never got caught and never got punished. So uh, that's not satisfying, is it? Especially when Japan's got the death penalty. You can be like, yes, or I can, because I love the death penalty, as everyone points out. When I started this, I didn't. And then I realized there were truly horrible people that deserve to die. Thanks for watching. Oh, if you like this show, leave a review on Spotify or wherever you get your shows. Thanks again. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.